Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks given to the Farnham U3A World History Group. In this talk, Joanne Watson tells us all about prohibition. Please note, the sound quality for parts of this recording is less than ideal because of problems with the amplification equipment. The production of alcohol goes back centuries and with it the inevitable problems as well as the delights. In the 19th century, parts of the Western world gained a moral conscience and after the abolition of slavery, prohibition became a major issue. Now, when the Puritans had arrived in North America, they led very restricted lives in many respects, but alcohol wasn't one of them. One ship reached the shores in 1620, including in its cargo, 10,000 gallons of wine and three times the amount of beer than water. Now, part of the reason was that the water was foul and beer was the staple and safer drink. The British government, as early as 1730, appalled at the level of alcohol consumption, even forbade the import of spirits into her American colonies. But the legislation was easily circumvented and didn't last long. President Alexander Hamilton in 1792 saw liquor as an article of equal consumption amongst the populace. He was thinking of revenue rather than morals, and he levied the tax accordingly. But its imposition led to what was called the Whiskey Rebellion, led by the Raleigh farmers of Pennsylvania. Now, although that tax lapsed in 1802, it was reimposed regularly whenever money was needed, most notably to fund the Union Army during the Civil War. In fact, during the 19th century, it provided a substantial part of federal revenue. Attempts at income tax had been tried and failed, and the Supreme Court ruled such legislation unconstitutional as late as 1895. And you'll see as we go along, how the two, drink and income tax, are closely related. Now, to go with the liquor, you needed a few drinking songs. Even such luminaries as Benjamin Franklin and General James Wolfe, who both played their part in American and colonial history, wrote such songs. But surprisingly, it was one familiar European drinking ditty that became an integral part of US life, albeit with different words. on the Star Spangled Banner. Now the words of it were actually written in 1814, but it didn't become popular 
until later in the 19th century, and it wasn't officially recognized as the US anthem until 1931. Now, by 1830, American adults drank the equivalent of 1.7 bottles of 80% proof liquor per person per week. And that's the modern equivalent of nearly three and a half standard bottles of whiskey per week. Now, one English traveler observed, I'm sure the Americans can fix nothing without a drink. They drink from the crack of dawn to the crack of dawn. Now, this level of drinking did lead to many early advocates of temperance, including a great number of women. But in this period, it meant moderation. But as early as 1840, prohibition was being muted at the highest level. But President Abraham Lincoln went on record to express his doubts, probably with one eye on the financial implications. Now, one of the most popular plays in the US in the 1840s was called The Drunkard. And it was actually put on by the legendary P.T. Barnum. Now, Barnum had turned teetotal in his 40s, and he presented lectures on the subject and only served ice water in his museum. He even became a member of the Connecticut legislature on a temperance ticket. Now, the advent of industrialization, refrigeration, railways, and pasteurization meant alcohol could be mass-produced, lasted longer, and be transported across the country. German immigrants were at the forefront as they brought with them both the methods of beer production and its associated drinking culture. The same culture was also prominent amongst the Irish immigrants, though in their case, many of that group gained local and national office and were definitely against any limitations. But the temperance movement began to gain ground as it was seen as a way to improve the social and spiritual health of the nation. The state of Maine voted in prohibition laws as early as 1851, but whilst a few followed suit, they seldom lasted long. Nationally, bills were presented to Congress every year from 1896, but none got out of the committee stage. The first nationwide prohibition laws were actually passed in Canada in 1864, the Duncan Act. The law allowed, but didn't compel, any county to forbid the sale of liquor by majority vote. Due to some loopholes in the legislation, the sale of liquor for sacramental or medicinal purposes was legal. So doctors prescribed medicinal pints. <laughs> As you can imagine, the, the abuse was so quick it led to long queues at doctors' surgeries, <laughs> especially at holiday times. The one province firmly against prohibition was Quebec, and as a consequence, the government decided against passing binding national legislation. A decade later, in 1874, the Women's Christian Temperance Union was born in the US, and it became active in Canada. It was the first mass movement to launch a campaign for prohibition. Now, the aim of the WC2TU was to create a sober and pure world by abstinence, purity, and evangelical Christianity. Under its second president, Francis Willard, it diversified its aims they actively promoted other issues such as women's suffrage and later developed an anti-tobacco branch and fought for improvements to working conditions. Amongst, amongst its much later aims was to keep the Sabbath free from certain ills, such as playing golf. <laughs> now, in its campaign against alcohol, members would stand outside saloons and house customers. They advocated supporters should learn German so they could go into that community and educate them. They saw European culture as a corrupt influence. 
This movement grew and grew, and in fact, by the 1920s, it had members in more than 40 countries. The other prominent prohibition organization was founded in 1893. It was called the Anti-Saloon League, and it was established with the sole aim of forcing through prohibition. This solitary focus made it the more successful. Its leader, Mary Hunt, a former chemistry teacher, was a very efficient agitator and lobbyist. Now, this league was supported by many Protestant sects, such as Baptists, Methodists, and Congregationalists, but conspicuously no Episcopalians and Lutherans. The joke was, Lutherans drank beer openly and praised God secretly, while the Methodists and Baptists praised God openly and drank secretly. <laughs> now, the Lutherans were mainly from German stock and were the backbone of the brewing industry in the US. Companies such as Anheuser-Busch, founded in 1852 in Missouri, went on to become the biggest brewer in the country. The Bush family embraced new methods and had a very active and high-profile marketing strategy with a variety of giveaways. This included this print of Custer's Last Stand of 1876. They commissioned it, and thousands were distributed over the years. I presume, though I don't know, that you've had to buy a few pints in order to get one. Now, it's not apparently very historically correct, but it was very popular. And incidentally, their brands include several still familiar today, such as Budweiser. But whilst the brewers were upping their game, the White House did make a stand, and for a short time went dry. The First Lady, nicknamed Lemonade Lucy Hayes, was in charge. In fact, it was her husband, Rutherford B. Hayes, who banned alcohol after he came into the White House as early as 1876, believing even then that the Republicans needed the temperance vote. Around the turn of the century, there came on the scene a woman who was to become infamous for her prohibition campaigning, Carrie Amelia Nation. She was an imposing woman, nearly six foot tall. Her radical attitude was in part almost certainly due to the fact that her first husband was an alcoholic. A second marriage to a minister called David Nation in Kansas was followed by what she said was a divine calling to ban alcohol. She would stand outside saloons singing hymns and initially just throwing rocks. But her rocks and bricks then became her signature instrument, a hatchet. <laughs> you wouldn't like to be her about that, she attacked pharmacies as well, believing alcohol was evil regardless of use. She deemed the practice of prescribing alcohol-based remedies for a host of ailments as disturbing as the use of alcohol as a social lubricant. She was, by all accounts, a little unstable, but that's what, <laughs> that's what her enemies said. She was arrested more than 30 times, but her fines were paid for by her lecture appearances and the sale of souvenir hatches. <laughs> Now, obviously, her campaign was more highly regarded in some states than in others, and many places would have a slogan above the bar, all nations welcome, but carry. She ended her days in Arkansas in a house that she called Hatchet Hall. Now, by now, saloons were multiplying, and the brewers who had grown in strength enabled much of this increase by financial incentives. Saloons were tied to the breweries, and of course were now more than just a bar. They could be focal points in a community with mail drops. Some even provided beds for visitors. They could also be a hotbed for political coercion and corruption. The brewers and distillers 
who incidentally didn't always see eye to eye, funded organisations fighting against prohibition and promoted articles in their favour. So the prohibition lobby went on to the offensive through education. And in 1901, there was compulsory 10% education in all states, three lessons a week. Now, their approach was more by intimidation. It was aimed at frightening the youngsters with playing such as when alcohol passes down your throat, it burns off the skin, leaving it burr and burning. The prohibitionists gained ground steadily, with a lot of material aimed at pricking the conscience of the drinkers, especially the idea of parent responsibility and family life. Now, their campaign was boosted by the introduction of a form of federal, i.e. national income tax, in 1913. This was four years after Congress had actually passed the law. And the 16th Amendment, which secured this change, revolutionised the ASL's strategy. As it meant instead of pushing for laws on a state-by-state -state basis, they began to seek national legislation. They called it the next and final step. Their new leader, Wayne Wheeler, was to be a major force. His approach and attitude attracted wealthy backers and gave him a powerful base. Rather like a terrier, he never gave up, even when the prize had been achieved. And he harried and hassled Congress for the best part of three decades. Wheeler started by initiating a mammoth propaganda campaign. He decamped to Washington and took with him a very savvy box of tricks to manipulate the dries from the wets. The dries marched into Washington, parading with representatives including many women from all the states. They presented a petition on the steps of the Capitol. By this time, the ASL had allied itself with the women's suffrage to their mutual benefit. Their bandwagons had been rolling along in parallel for many years, and now both were taking a giant step to eventual fruition. Jack London, the author and reformed alcoholic, told his wife, the moment women get the vote in any community, the first thing they will do is close the saloons. Not surprisingly, then, that the brewing lobby opposed women's suffrage and supported their opposition with millions of dollars. However, it antagonized many neutral women who previously had little interest in prohibition. In one short period in the 1910s, seven states adopted prohibition, and in each case it was where women had been given the vote. Now, a lot had to be done to get the legislation through. But in 1914, one influential member of the House of Representatives went on record saying, if a family or nation is sober, nature in its normal course will cause this to rise to a higher constitution. If not, they are debauched by liquor and must decline and ultimately perish. And of course, parts of the world, if not the US, have gone to war. And many echoed David Lloyd George's remarks we are fighting the Germans, the Austrians, and drink. And the deadliest of these is drink. Now, prohibition was never proposed here, but regulations restricting alcohol consumption, excise duty, and pub closing hours had a profound effect. The temperance movement was actually spreading across Europe, though Tsar Nicholas's vodka ban in 1914 only resulted in a proliferation of illicit stills. The Icelandic ban on Spanish wine only lasted until the Spanish imposed massive tariffs on Icelandic fish imports. Well, similar tap, tip the tap legislation still prevails today. Crucial were the congressional elections in 1916 when President Woodrow Wilson was re-elected and some form of dry law was on the statute books in 23 states. Now the brewers and distillers had their allies on the ultra-conservative wing, but this had little appeal to the average American 
They blacklisted companies such as Heinz, Cadillac, Procter & Gamble, and Western Union for their dry leaks. They bought newspapers to influence public opinion and promote their words. A major change came in 1917 when President Wilson went before Congress to request authority to enter the war, which they did in April that year. Much of his propaganda was anti-European, especially anti-German, or as he saw it, the immigrants who weren't loyal to their new country and had poured the poison of disloyalty into the arteries of our national life. Now, of course, the brewing industries linked to Germany meant the First World War marginalised their supporters. There was anti-drink propaganda pointing out that the grain used in producing alcohol could be better directed at the war effort. One economist said that the grain used in brewing would produce 11 million loaves a day. Now, that figure was probably double the real amount, and the brewers countered by saying their grain use was less than three-quarters of one percent. During the war, dry zones were established around military bases, coal mines, and war industry plants. And the, the patriotic zeal was ratcheted up by the former president, Theodore Roosevelt. Now, he thought of prohibition as previously as extremists, but he wrote to the head of the Methodist church saying, not a bushel of grain should be permitted to be made into intoxicating liquor. Now, the tax on booze was once more increased and was seen this time as a patriotic act and opened up more widespread constitutional change that previously was so difficult to enact. The Canadians acted first with national legislation in 1918, but those hard-drinking Quebecois repealed it almost immediately the war ended. But the passing of the Prohibition Amendment in the US wasn't going to be so easy. Only three previous constitutional amendments had been adopted, so much work had to be done behind the scenes to avoid too much watering down. Metaphorically, of course. Now, the campaign was ferocious. Amongst the government's ideas was a group called the Four Minute Men. A total of 75,000 individuals were organised to go round, giving brief and usually inflammatory speeches before every conceivable audience. For example, between the real changes and local cinemas. It's reckoned that in 18 months they spoke to more than 300 million people on a variety of topics concerning the war. Prohibition, food rationing, liberty bonds, registering for the draft. Amongst the four minute men were Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, and Douglas Fairbanks. Now, this strategy was created by a journalist called George Creel, he stated that people do not live by bread alone, they live mostly by slogans. <laughs> he was obviously a man way ahead of his time. He was in charge of the US Committee on Public Information, basically the head of propaganda. Now, as you can imagine, anti-German hysteria swept the country. Boston forbid the playing of Beethoven. Other cities banned speaking in German. Certain road names were anglicized. Sauerkraut was renamed Liberty Cabbage. <laughs> and inevitably, violent incidents were quite common. The brewers were under increased attack. Their pro-wet tactics were deemed unpatriotic. Not helped when it was revealed that the Bush Company had bought a million dollars worth of German war bonds, albeit before the US entered the war. Whatever they did in trying to mitigate their actions really failed. Some states brought in more laws against the sale of alcohol. It wasn't until November 5th, 1918, that the 18th Amendment was passed. Wayne Wheeler of the ASL essentially wrote the bill, 
but Congressman Andrew Volstead is termed the father of the act. He wasn't an ardent prohibitionist, just the man assigned to get it through. He was described as being as colorful as the white snow that fell on his home state of Minnesota. <laughs> he hated publicity. He just happened to be the chair of the Judiciary Committee. The bill had 67 sections and made sufficient amendments to suit, well, most of the fences. The Act had three major provisions. To prohibit intoxicating beverages, to regulate the manufacture, sale, or transport of intoxicating liquor, and to ensure an ample supply of alcohol and promote its use in scientific research and in the development of fuel, dye, and other lawful industries and practices, such as religious rituals. It further provided that no persons from manufacture, sell, barter, transport, import, export, deliver, or furnish any intoxicating liquor, except as authorized by the Act. It did not specifically prohibit the purchase or consumption. The Act defined intoxicating liquor as any beverage containing more than 0.5% alcohol by volume, and superseded all existing prohibition laws in effect in states that already had legislation. Now, this extremely low level on alcohol content, banning wine and beer, took many around the country by surprise, even prohibition supporters, though some counties imposed even stricter conditions. One notable exception, homemade cider was allowed, apparently to enable farmers and housewives of the country to conserve their fruits. It also allowed people to drink alcohol before the bill came into force, so the existing wine cellars were safe and stockpiling was inevitable. Since it didn't clearly define intoxicating liquor or provide penalties, it granted both the federal and the state governments the power to enforce the ban by appropriate legislation, and we see that this was a major loophole. Although the Volstead Act was passed in November 1980, there was a gap before its ratification in January 1919. Each of the three states had to ratify it. They needed a two-thirds majority to do so. And even then, January 19, there was a year before Prohibition came into force, January the 17, 1920. Now, when it was, only the hopelessly naive would have believed that the moonshine and smuggling businesses and any form of illicit trade or production would disappear. But the vines in Napa Valley were being dug up and replaced by fruit orchards. One prominent Prohibition evangelist, Billy Sunday, held court regularly often to more than 10,000 avid supporters, and painted a picture of a future utopia. The slums will soon be a memory. We will turn prisons into factories and our jails into storehouses. Men will walk upright. Women will smile. Children will laugh. Hell will be forever for rent. Well, to reinforce the point, there was a lot of publicity of the throwing away of alcohol across the country. Some communities even sold off their jails. It also led to many ironic and comic songs celebrating the Prohibition era.
Now, the exceptions under the law led to widespread abuse. 15,000 pharmacists applied for permits to sell medicinal whiskies. For most of the 20s, a patient could apply for a prescription for a pint every 10 days, and a doctor could write 100 prescriptions a month on official forms. Now, some disguised the substance by writing it in Latin. A patient would pay $3 for a prescription and 3 to $4 for the drink, but the better stuff would be available for a premium. Now, remember, many existing local health tonics traditionally had always contained a high dose of alcohol. Not all the states permitted medicinal exceptions or restricted what could be doled out. For example, they said no name brands who get here expressly for family and medicinal use. Now, violation of the act was immediate with criminals hijacking freight carriages of stored liquor and medicinal alcohol. On the positive side, alcohol-related deaths and arrests for drunkenness in 1920 did fall. But it's estimated that in the decade after the act came into force, alcohol consumption only reduced by 30%. Incidentally, one state openly refused to comply, and that was Maryland, south of New York. There was a large immigrant community, especially in Baltimore. And perhaps it's not surprising me that this city founded a forerunner of Alcoholics Anonymous. In the meantime, new drinks were devised, which seemed to include everything except alcohol, and grape juice sales rocketed. Quite a lot of them have got milk in them, um, orange juice, lime juice, various bits of syrup. And the other thing that was very common was sarsaparilla. Now, this apparently had been a popular ingredient of patent medicines because it had anti-inflammatory properties and was a regular treatment for skin problems. In fact, there was a big manufacturing works in South London and people would go at weekends for their pint of sarsaparilla. Now, the largest supplier these days comes from a firm in South London, and you can apparently still buy sarsaparilla cordial at Sainsbury's and Tesco, but I failed to find any. <laughs> now, according to the novelist F. Scott Fitzgerald, during Prohibition, the parties were bigger, the pace was faster, and the morals were looser. The mob certainly gained a greater foothold, creating a booming black market economy. Pre-prohibition, gangsters had largely confined their activities to prostitution, extortion, and gambling. But prohibition brought a whole new world of business opportunities. Most famous of the gangland bosses was Alphonse Scarface Capone. The son of Italian immigrants, he became head of the Chicago Mafia. In 1920, Capone and his mentor, Johnny Torrio, took over control of the vast crime empire. They negotiated peace and cooperation amongst the various Chicago gangs by organizing them into distinct territories ruled exclusively by each gang. When Torrio gave up the business in 1923, following a savage attempt on his life, he went into retirement with a package of around $30 million. Capone, at the age of just 26, became boss of the Chicago mob, earning millions of dollars from illegal breweries and a transportation network that reached to Canada. <coughs> Combining the methods of the Italian mafia but with those of American big business, Capone evolved one of the most efficient financial businesses in the Prohibition era, a structure which became known as organized crime. His syndicate was nicknamed Murder Inc., and the Tommy gun and machine gun was the enforcer's weapon of choice. Now, the bribery and corruption of the police, politicians, judges, prohibition agents, city officials, and the cooperation of the mayor 
enables Capone to operate his crime empire with relative impunity. Chicago's police chief admitted about 60% of his policemen were in the bootleg business or in the pay of gangsters. By 1927, Capone and his Chicago Mafia were pulling in approximately $60 million per year and controlled the sale of liquor to over 10,000 speakeasies. He dressed in tailored suits, silk shirts with a trademark fedora, and was a millionaire before he was 30. In 1928, he bought a palatial waterfront mansion in Palm Springs, designed in the latest Art Deco style. His car, a $20,000 armor-plated Cadillac, had 3,000 pounds of steel armor fitted and a bulletproof gas tank. It was equipped with bulletproof windows and a police siren. The back window dropped down so machine guns could be fired. <laughs> Sounds a bit like Batman, doesn't it? It had a top speed of 120 miles an hour, so it must have a very powerful engine. And it had the ability to create a smoke screen via its exhaust. <laughs> and Capone felt he was only satisfied with the nation's needs. And his gang were involved in numerous murders, including the infamous Valentine's Day's massacre in February 1929, when rival gangs bloodied his hat. This, for the government, was a step too far. Although Capone served a little jail time in 1929 for carrying concealed weapons, Worse was to come for him. In 1930, the Untouchables, a group of uncorrupted agents led by Elliot Ness, arrested him and he was indicted on 5,000 prohibition crimes. Surprisingly, it was decided that it would be difficult to prosecute these charges. Instead, following a ruling in 1927 that income on illegal earnings could be taxed and you couldn't claim the Fifth Amendment, i.e. not file an income tax which would be self-incriminating, he was eventually jailed for tax evasion in 1931 and ended up in Alcatraz. Now, he eventually died from a heart attack, having suffered from syphilis for many years, which affected his mental faculties. He refused a penicillin injection, which could well have cured his syphilis, because, would you believe it, he had an extreme fear of needles. <laughs> Incidentally, his brother, Vincenzo, was a federal enforcement agent in Nebraska. He left Chicago after a gang brawl when he was 16, and changed his name. Now, much of the mob revenue came from speakeasies. Speakeasies talk quietly when mentioning where the venue would be. These replaced neighborhood saloons, and by 1925, there were over 100,000 speakeasies in New York City alone. Now, many were readily identified by the simple sign of a green door. The liquor they sold was of variable sort, though killing off your customers was bad for business. It was, however, often called squirrel whiskey because it made men talk nutty and climb trees. <laughs> now, of course, the higher the class of establishment, the better it was supposed to be, and demand for brand names became the norm. Many British companies created specialist export brands for these establishments. Now, many would try and pass off industrial liquor by filling brand bottles and even go as far as soaking them in seawater, suggest they'd come from offshore. And of course, there was never any guarantee on the quality of the contents, and counterfeit booze would bring higher profits. It was estimated that in 1926, the bootleg trade was worth $3.6 billion annually, the same as the entire federal budget. The previous year, the dollar note printers had to supply $300 million more large denomination bills than ever before. 
who, said one congressional witness, gets paid their salaries in $10,000 bills. Well, among open plush nightclubs with exotic floor shows and the hottest bands. They even provided a little map to show where they all were. At Small's Paradise in Harlem, waiters danced the Charleston Canyon trays loaded down with cocktails. Popular stars like Fred and Adele Astaire entertained at the Trocadero, and at the Cotton Club, Duke Ellington led the house. Out in rural America on Midwestern college campuses, kids drank bathtub gin and danced to the hot jazz of Biz and the Wolverines in Lakeside Pavilions. It was the era of the flappers with their short skirts and bobbed hair who smoked and drank cocktails. You must remember, women only got the vote nationally in the US in 1920. And many thought the music of the period, the new hot jazz, was a source of sin. Ironically, it led to much more racial integration, and many more women started going to these new plush nightclubs than ever went to the old-fashioned bars. The arrest rate for women for public drunkenness inevitably rose. This was a major shock to the old order, but many speakeasies would set up restaurants as an added attraction to women. This had the added advantage of table service, so women didn't have to prop up the bar. And then the addition of a powder room oh, completed the transformation. But some men preferred the old days when women stayed at home while they drank with their mates. Now, as we saw, it brought the races together, not just in the same establishment, but as dancing partners. And some of the hottest clubs were in black areas, with black bands and largely white clientele. One of the stars of the speakeasy racket was a brassy blonde, peroxide blonde, who called herself Texas Gwillem. She'd been an actress in the silent film westerns, a bareback circus rider, and a singer in vaudeville before front speakeasies for the mob. Famous for her greeting the patrons with hello suckers, the clubs were raided at padlock police by police, so often that she wore a necklace made of padlocks as her trademark. She also employed a chauffeur-driven armoured car. And of course it all added to the vocabulary of the nation. As you probably guessed by now, bootleggers, these were originally the people who hid liquors in their boots. And the term originated in smuggling days in the Georgian period here, where goods were concealed in the large riding boots. Moonshine was illegally distilled liquor. Bathtub gin, where the flagons were filled with water from under the bathtub tap as part of this dodgy process. And this was a very popular way to originate on college campuses. Now, the illicit stills often had lead pipes, and recipes included items such as creosote for colour and embalming fluid to give it an extra punch. <laughs> Other makeshift distillers went to extreme lengths to disguise the smell of alcohol, such as putting rotting animal carcasses outside so the real business was disguised. Now, if a speakeasy didn't suit, you could go to a blind pig bar. Here, you paid to see a blind pig running round and was served complimentary booze. Then there was rum running, which covered a wide variety of drink. The Bahamas proved an ideal transit point for one of the most notable smugglers called William McCoy. Not the real McCoy. <laughs> now, ironically, he was a teetotaler. Now, since American registered boats were governed by American law, they would be re-registered under the Bahamian flag. Scotch whiskey was exported in huge quantities, and McCoy would sail outside the three-mile limit and then deliver his goods along the Atlantic coast. 
And the Bahamians imposed a middleman tax, which went a long way to improving their country's infrastructure. So at least somebody came out with it to, to something to the good. Then there was the cruise to nowhere, literally a boots cruise to outside territorial waters. Some mobsters even went into the shipping business themselves, bringing the bottles over from Europe and cutting out the middlemen. Now, the American government, angry at the bootleg trade, pressurised the British government into agreeing a new 12-mile limit in the hope it would stop some of the smuggling operations. Now, the papers, surprisingly, largely ignored the trade, but occasionally they reflected on market conditions. There was one headline in the New York World when they announced on December 24th, Rum Kings Ashore Wet Christmas, after the boats made it through thick fog. And, of course, there was the one clause in the Volstead Act that positively encouraged production. This was the option for the head of the household to produce 200 gallons a year of fermented fruit juice for his family's use. Suddenly, the land that had been turned to fruit trees was being brought to grow vines for wine, and the market for even the poorest of grapes blossomed in the most unlikely parts of the States and at highly inflated prices. For a brief time, there was an explosion in homemade wine, though much was of very poor quality. And of course, the purchase and consumption of communion, or sacramental wine, for all appropriate religions was at an all-time high. One of the most established and dangerous sources of bootleg drink was industrial alcohol. It was used in a variety of substances, such as aftershave, for example. Its legal production provided a great source for illegal activities and grand sale corruption. To counter this, the government introduced a bill to take the alcohol before it left the distillery. This was done by adding a substance that made it, in theory, undrinkable. Everything from mild soap or menthol crystals. However, other ingredients were more noxious, such as sulfuric acid, formaldehyde and iodine. Now, whilst this didn't stop it being stolen and misused, it did have the unwanted side effect of killing and debilitating those who drank it. In 1927, more than 600 people died in New York from poisoned alcohol, and the following year more than 1,000, with many more becoming ill. By the end of Prohibition, they estimate more than 10,000 had died in the city from drinking the stuff. Charles Norris, the chief medical examiner of New York City during the 1920s, liked to say, it was our national experiment in extermination. The expression blind drunk came from the after effects of drinking wood alcohol, the capacity to attack the optic nerve and destroy the retinal cells. Coca-Cola's sales tripled during Prohibition. Their tagline was, the drink that cheers but does not inebriate, a quote that had previously been attached to tea. Now, Bush came up with a substance initially called near beer, which he marketed as something called Bevo, and many other brewers followed suit, but they then imposed a ban on the word beer, so it didn't uh, flourish for very long. So they then developed a drink with malt syrup. Now, this started off innocent enough, but the addition of water, yeast, and thyme transformed itself into a real alcohol beer. Now, it was sold pre-fermentation, so it was legal, and the home brewers came out in force. Now, the Anti-Saloon League wanted to ban it, but that move never took flight. As for some of the other brewers, well, they diversified into cheese or ice cream. Sales of the latter really took off in this period. 
But what a popular culture. Now, the cinemas were thriving in this period, so what did the film industry do? They craved glamour and increasingly set scenes in upmarket speakeasies. There was a Hollywood code that said they couldn't show people drinking, but bottles could be emptied and glasses held. But more than 60% of movies made in this period showed people drinking. It was, they claimed, reflecting life in America. With the advent of talkies, some gangster movies, such as Little Caesar with Edward G. Robinson and Public Enemy with James Cagney, were amongst the most popular. Both were released while Prohibition was still forced, and more followed. And it was the same with popular literature. The hard-drinking heroes favoured by certain novelists would have lost their danger if their drink of choice was a chocolate soda. I mentioned that Quebec was very anti-Prohibition, and this became a very popular tourist destination. And although alcohol production was prohibited for Canadian consumption, it could still be exported. So there was a roaring trade from Canada to the US over the border. Tourism flourished with hundreds of thousands crossing over, and it saw the establishment of roadhouses along the border providing the necessary refreshment. And if you couldn't make it yourself, well, the booze would make its own way south. It's reckoned that in the few months before Prohibition came into force, more than 900,000 cases found their way to a border town. Others had already been hoarding gallons. They would hide it in the woods in the weeks leading to the fateful date. And when the Detroit River froze, well, they would drive across. Well, many near that border just flouted the law. One Detroit newspaper man wrote, it was impossible to get a drink in the city unless you walked 10 feet tall and told the very busy bartender that you wanted in a very loud voice, the drink of, of choice. You had to let speak loud enough for him to hear above all the uproar. In a rare crackdown in the late 1920s, 366 rum running boats over this border were seized. A little later, all but one was stolen from the government storage facility. <laughs> now alternatively, if you had the money and you could make it to Florida, you could pop over to Cuba and enjoy the local cocktails. New airline companies were founded on the Florida-Caribbean drinking routes. Uh, Bacardi was one company whose Cuban operation brought rich dividends. The US liners started off as dry and lost trade as a result. And when the restrictions were eased, Anheuser-Busch wrote to the president, Warren Harding, calling the US government the biggest bootlegger in the world. Harding himself <coughs> was rarely short of a drink, and he stocked up with the help of the attorney general who supplied him with confiscated liquor. He was delivered by Department of Justice employees. His dryness was a matter, of, a matter of political convenience. Many a presidential reception was marked by the quantity and quality of the liquor available to guests. His presidency was short-lived. He died in 1923. One paper described him as having none of the moral or intellectual qualities qualify him, even under ordinary circumstances, for statesmanlike leadership. I wonder who that could also apply to. <laughs> but the pressure meant that Harding had declared all US ships should be dry, and then that any foreign ships coming into US ports had to be free of liquor. Well, major rows between the governments of the US and Europe, and threats of tit-for-tat legislation meant he had to relent and the liquor only had to be sealed coming into US ports. The US ships had to resort to other tactics to get passengers, such as having top bands. 
first run movies, driving ranges. And of course, all that happened was that US passengers would bring their own booze on board. Now, even when the government increased the Coast Guard, it proved less effective than hoped. In fact, virtually every measure they tried proved inadequate, largely because there was little public support and so much widespread corruption amongst the enforcers. Incidentally, there were several congressional bootleggers with a chap called George Cassidy, known as the man in the green hat, as the most influential. He sold illicit booze to senators and congressmen for 10 years until he was arrested. He then spilled the beans in the pages of the Washington Post. He'd even been given an office, but he never disclosed who his customers were. Now, with so few law enforcement agents, it was inevitable that, that there was no effective mechanism for enforcing the law. And many of the federal agents made a handsome living from bribes and blackmail. Few states helped in the enforcement, which made prosecution so much more difficult. The new president, Calvin Coolidge, was reluctant to strengthen enforcement. He apparently thought government should stay out of the lives of the American public, and although personally against prohibition, remained pretty dry in office. Those found guilty of breaking the law were guaranteed a jury trial, but the vast majority of cases either never went to trial or found the juries unwilling to convict. In theory, in New York alone, there would have been 50,000 cases a year. Now, in order to convict, many cases were downgraded to a little fine, and there were even professional defendants who would appear for the named accused to go through the process for a little remuneration. And, of course, all these indictments just clogged up the justice system. Incidentally, some bootleggers were quite inventive in the way they used to disguise their operations. They'd employ false souls. So this soul looked like a, a cow's hoof. So anyone following the tracks would be following the tracks of a cow rather than a bootlegger. But with so few police to enforce the law, the vigilante groups grew up, and notably amongst them was the Ku Klux Klan. Now, they had literally fought against freedom and enfranchisement of black slaves post the Civil War and had, in theory, been shut down. But during Prohibition, they rose again. They were drives and attacked bootleggers across the country. Many of their targets were European Catholic migrants who they saw as a prime cause of the drunken culture. They would burn down Catholic houses and businesses, terrorizing communities, though many weren't averse to drinking the booze they seized. A study in the 1920s established that roughly half the professional bootleggers were Eastern European Jews, 25% Italian, and the remainder a mix of ethnicities, including Polish and Irish. Consequently, there was pressure to, in to introduce a deportation program, but instead, in 1924, they passed an act which banned immigration from Asia and set limits on Europeans. Now, inevitably, as soon as prohibition was passed, movements began to seek its repeal. It became very evident, very quickly, that the brightening, socially responsible society the temperance movement had promised hadn't materialized. Once again, it was the Canadians who acted first. Repeals started in Quebec, and then gradually through the other provinces, with the odd exception of a town here and there, and Prince Edward Island, who hung on until 1948. In the US, many had seen the Volstead Act as unenforceable anyway, there were marches, newspaper campaigns, all to turn the tide. But they would need the same two-thirds majority to amend the act. Wayne Wheeler, the ever-forceful president of the Anti-Saloon League, never sat on his laurels. 
prompting his congressional puppets for greater money for enforcement, but his personal constitution had suffered from his labors. In 1927, while recuperating, it was further weakened when he witnessed a horrific family accident. His wife was engulfed in flames after a drum of gasoline exploded near where she worked. She rushed into the room where Wheeler would extinguish the flames, but she died. Her father died from a heart attack, and Wheeler followed two weeks later, probably from delayed shock. His successors were nowhere near as capable, and the League lost much of its influence. Now, by now, the anti-prohibition lobby were beginning to gain some momentum, but it struggled initially to get the abolitionists into the right parts of Congress. But the fledgling association against the Prohibition Amendment did find an impressive leader with money to back the cause. Pierre Dupont, a mega-millionaire businessman, was head of General Motors, the largest company in the world. He took the case to heart, even organizing his own referendum in his home state of Delaware, which, not surprisingly, came out eight to one in favor of repeal. He was joined by many big names in industry, but it wasn't altruistic. Their real aim was not merely the return of alcohol. He knew the consequences of the tremendous loss of revenue to the government, which had come from taxes on beer and liquor, and which meant the federal coffers were being filled by greater taxation on people like him and their businesses. Now, rather over-optimistically, he claimed repeal would lead to the end of income and corporation tax. Others, such as teetotaler John J. Rockefeller, a major supporter of prohibition, also changed sides and withdrew his financial support for the drives. But when the Republican Herbert Hoover won the 1928 election by a high margin, it seemed to boost the prohibition cause. Now, previously, Hoover, as Secretary of State for Commerce, would apparently stop off at the Belgian embassy on his way home for his daily cocktails. <laughs> now, if you think of the innumerable factions in the pro and anti-Brexit campaign here and the complications, well, it was a similar situation during, during Prohibition. And remember, that went on for 13 years. <laughs> now, a new law saw Volstead violations upgraded from misdemeanors to felons. So instead of just small fines, first-time offenders could face 10 years in jail. This extended to witnesses to the sale or transport of booze, and not just the perpetrators. This provoked another change of fortunes. William Randolph Hearst, who started as a dry, who controlled 28 newspapers, changed sides. Juries were now even more reluctant to find minor offenders guilty, and few of the mobsters ever got to court on these charges. The commission was set up to look at the entire operation of prohibition. The statistics confirmed active illicit production had rocketed and just showed how powerless the authorities were. Then at the height of financial buoyancy, disaster struck. The Wall Street crash in 1929 and the Great Depression which followed. Unemployment soared to more than 3 million and government revenue dropped below basic expenditure. But it still took four years to achieve repeal. This was primarily because it wasn't that easy. No other act had been overturned in their constitutional history. As late as 1930, a leading prohibitionist in Congress stated, there is as much chance of repealing the 18th Amendment as there is for a hummingbird to fly to the planet Mars with a Washington Monument tied to its tail. <laughs> Interestingly, the women's vote, so firmly behind prohibition, had split. 
A group called the Women's Organization for National Prohibition Reform, they never had short names, these places, they came under the charismatic leadership of a leading Republican activist, Pauline Sabine. Now, she was originally in favor of prohibition, but as it became evident that it wasn't working, she criticized the hypocrisy of the politicians who claimed they were dry in public, but drank in private. She saw young people growing up with no respect for the law. Her wealthy background meant the initial supporters came from the higher echelons of society and attracted publicity supporters in great numbers. Now, this organization had more than 1.5 million followers by 1931, and that was three times the Women's Temperance Union. It became the biggest repeal group in the country. But it still wasn't one-way traffic. The Wets achieved some important advantages when the Canadian government made it illegal to ship alcoholic beverages to countries that banned their sale. In theory, this was a big step, as the monies the Canadians had received had been enormous. But once again, it wasn't an insurmountable problem, as other avenues opened up for distribution. Like the little boy with his finger in the dike, it was impossible to stop all the leaks. Who was commissioned took 18 months to come to a decision, and then as late as 1931, only advocated a change in the law to make it more effective. The dries were hanging on. But the impending presidential election in 1932 was the final litmus test, and people came out in their droves to show how they felt. Franklin Roosevelt came out in favor of repeal, and he won a landslide victory over Hoover, and Congress set in motion the process. Each state had to hold a referendum, send a delegate to the convention to vote on repeal. Well, they didn't hang around. An initial bill to allow light beers and wines was passed in March 1933. But states were still allowed to keep prohibition if they wished. Meanwhile, they set about ratifying full-on repeal. Michigan was first in April, but it wasn't until November the 7th when Utah voted in favor that they had the requisite two-thirds majority for it to be passed. It came into force at 4.31 on December the 5th, 1933, with the passing of the 21st Amendment. Although some areas remained dry, for most it marked the end of an era that had lasted 13 years, 10 months, 19 days, 17 hours, and 32 and a half minutes. It was greeted by President Roosevelt with the comment, what America needs now is a drink. <laughs> The brewers who had survived, just 31 out of 1,300 pre-prohibition, sprang into action. The wine trade took a little longer to revive, as many of the best growers had left the industry and with them the knowledge. A month after repeal, the government, short of cash, brought in a new liquor tax. Income tax was reduced for the poor, but not for the rich. Not the outcome DuPont and his fellow businessmen had envisaged. Of course, this wasn't and still isn't the end of the dry and the wet campaigns. As recently as a couple of years ago, there were reckoned to be more than 200 dry counties in the US, mainly in these states. Some have full-on restrictions, other a variety of laws and regulations. And of course, as more and more people could drive to a neighboring area to buy alcohol, the ban became less effective. There were studies showed the incidence of drink-dry fatalities was higher in dry counties because the victims had traveled further to get their alcohol. Several wet counties have dry periods, such as on election days, and of course, many countries these days still have bans. And the Prohibition Party is still in existence, 150 years after its formation, and it's fielded a presidential candidate in every election since 1892.
The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A History Group, or the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening.